let's pray together and ask God to meet us in the word. It's good to hear what you're doing, Lord, in, in the communities here, in the home groups. And we thank you for the cross and for your resurrection and for your saving work in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you just help me now as I preach. Uh, Give me clarity of mind and more of your heart. And would you strengthen us as a people in the word. Encourage us as we follow you, Jesus. And do a deep work in each of our hearts, I pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. We all tend to live uh, as if life on this earth is just going to keep on going the same way forever, right? You know, sun comes up, sun comes down, goes down, uh, you know, you go to work, you do the laundry, you make the meals, fall, winter, spring, summer. We all tend to live life as if uh, life on earth here will just go on the same forever. But it won't. It's crucial that we get this. The day's coming when Jesus Christ is going to come back. He will return. This isn't just metaphor or talk. This is reality. Jesus Christ will come back. And the day that he comes back, everything will change. Everything. Money will be irrelevant. Right? Your body will be transformed. Your relationships will all change. Your, your house won't be important, your, your clothes, your car won't be of any significance. Everything's going to change. The things that people today think are really, really important on that day will be seen as, as irrelevant. And the things that today many people think are irrelevant, that day will be seen as of vital importance. So what I want to talk about today is what's going to happen when Jesus returns and when will he return? Kind of focus on two questions. And the passage that we're working on, we started last week and we're going to go through this morning, is Matthew chapter 24. So why don't you go ahead and turn there. And, um, you know, I'd like each to have a Bible so that you can look on. If you didn't bring one, so raise your hand, we'll bring one to you that you can, can look on with. I want to have be people of the word most important thing you'll hear this morning is what's in the, in the book in your hands there. Far more important than what I'm going to say. Matthew 24 is on page 829 in the Bibles that we're passing out. Now this chapter, Matthew 24, which is repeated in Mark 13 and Luke 21, is the most detailed teaching Jesus gives on what will happen before he comes back, what will happen when he comes back, And when it is that he's going to come back, right here in Matthew 24. Now last week we covered verses 1 through 28, and we went over what will happen before the end, before Jesus comes back. And this morning I want us to cover verses 29 through 35, and we're going to look at two topics. Um, What will happen when Jesus returns, and when will he return? Now, before we we get there, I kind of want to set the stage by asking the question, why is Jesus' return so important to his followers? Because when you read through the New Testament, you see that, that men and women who have been genuinely born again through faith in Jesus Christ, who are new creations in Christ, those kind of people long 
for Jesus to come back. You just see it all through the New Testament. Like Paul prays in 1 Corinthians 16, Maranatha, which is, is Aramaic for Lord, come. He's praying for Christ to come back. And in the book of 1 Peter, Peter tells us that, that men and women who trust Christ have all their hope fixed on the coming of Jesus. And uh, Romans chapter 8, Paul says that believers in Jesus Christ groan for his return, groaning for him to come back. And in uh, Titus chapter 2, Paul tells us that followers of Jesus earnestly desire and long for his return. So you read through the New Testament, and followers of Jesus long for Christ to come back. But why? What, what's that about? And I thought of, of a couple different reasons for them. I just want to share these with you. One reason uh, that I've been feeling even more this morning and this week is, is because in this life we're not yet free from sin. Okay? If you've experienced Jesus' saving work, then you have been changed profoundly. But part of that change is not that you've been totally set free from all your sin. Yet. Okay? Which means that you still are burdened by your remaining sin. It's like the cha- there's still some chains that are on you. You're still, you still hate your remaining sin. You hate the, the indifference and the greed and the self-righteousness. You hate the, just the lukewarmness that can come, the gossip that can be, the envy that you can... I've been kind of struggling with that a little bit. I mean, so we're burdened by our remaining sin. We hate our remaining sin. Every day we're fighting against our remaining sin. But when Jesus returns, you will be set free from all remaining sin. Woohoo! It's awesome! And that's one of the reasons you long for Jesus to come back. It's an awesome thing, not to fight pride anymore. Another reason, we have trials, like we learned last week, right? First verses of Matthew 24. Jesus promised us tribulation. Now we know trials purify our faith. Trials, Jesus will be near to us in those trials. Trials give us an opportunity to display his glory to people around us. We know all that, but, but there's still trials, right? Our hearts still ache with them. Our bodies are in pain because of disease or illness. We still suffer loss. There's still trials that we go through. Some of you are going through severe trials now, I know. So in this life, we have trials. But when Jesus returns, it will be the end of all trials. John says he'll wipe away every tear from your eyes. There'll be no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. Your trials will be over forever. That's the second reason we long for Jesus' return. Another reason. In this life, we suffer for the gospel. Saw that last week, early verses of Matthew 24. If you're a follower of Jesus, your life is centered around the advance of the gospel. And you want to raise your kids to love Jesus. You want to build your wife in trusting Jesus. You want to build your family to be a little missionary team in your neighborhood and in your workplace. And so you're, you're focusing your life on, on advancing the gospel. And as you do that, as you love people and share the gospel with people, you will see many people come to know Christ, like that imam that Joe shared about in, in North Morocco. I love that story. You'll see that happen. But Jesus also said that, that some would not. And that some 
of those who would not will respond with anger, uh, ostracism, rejection of you. And in some countries, they'll respond with beatings and, and prison and, and death. We saw that last week. That's, that's the reality of this life. We suffer for the gospel. But Jesus' return will bring all that suffering to an end. Never again. No more suffering for the gospel. So we long for his return. One last reason. Because in this life, we just know Jesus in part. Now, I'm going to state this in kind of a balanced way. When you first put your trust in Jesus Christ, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you taste for the first time the joy of knowing God in the person of Jesus, and your heart is filled. Remember that? Okay. But as great as that is, it's just a taste. Now, now just a taste of Jesus is infinitely more satisfying than anything else. Let's be clear on that. But still, it's just a taste. But when Jesus comes back, that taste, that that hors d'oeuvre, will become the full banquet. You will, at that point on, know Jesus completely, fully, lastingly. And that's another reason we long for Jesus' return, because right now we have a deposit, a down payment, but the full inheritance of knowing him is coming. Okay, so those are some reasons. That's some of the reasons why in the New Testament you see men and women who are following Jesus long for his return. Because in this life, we're fighting sin. We suffer trials. We suffer for the gospel. We know Jesus, but it's just in part. It's through a mirror dimly. We want to know face to face. And when Jesus returns, all that will be over. He'll return. So now, let's look at Matthew 24. What will happen when Jesus returns? What will take place? And I just want to tell you, whether you die first or are here on earth when he returns, you will experience this. Okay, Because the moment he returns, if you've already died, you will be resurrected. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, whether you've bent the knee before Christ or not, you'll be resurrected. And so every single one of us here in this room, you will experience this. You will experience Jesus returning. You will see him. This is huge. So what will happen? Look what Jesus says. Start in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I think Jesus' point here is that the entire cosmos is going to be transformed. I mean, just imagine if all of a sudden the sun went black. And, of course, the moon stopped shining. And all the stars fell down out of the sky. And, the, I mean, powers of the heavens be shaken. Now, this very well could be something that literally happens. No reason why it couldn't literally take place. But I think Jesus' point here is to help us understand that when he returns, everything is going to change. The entire cosmos is going to be transformed and changed. Everything is going to be changed except for Jesus and what's been connected to him. Try to think of a way to picture this. Let's say that you knew for sure, just you know, put on your, imagine this crazy idea, thought, okay, put, put on that hat, 
Imagine that you knew for sure that in the next few minutes there was going to be a massive earthquake hitting the whole globe and everything was going to fall away except for, I was going to bring this cross out a little farther, except for this cross, I'll just let, let, me, let me bring it out here, just so you can see a little bit better. So you knew that everything was going to fall away on the whole globe except for this cross and anything that was clinging to this cross, okay? You knew for sure in a few moments, massive global earthquake, everything was going to fall away except for this cross and, and there's room for everybody up here. So what would you do? You'd be clinging to this cross, right? Now, that's the truth, not in a few moments necessarily, but the day is coming when Jesus Christ will return and everything will fall away. Everything will be transformed, changed. And the most important thing is that you're clinging to Jesus at that day. If you're clinging to Jesus, you'll be fine. You'll be more than fine, okay, if you're clinging to Jesus. So the world as we know it, the globe, you know, your life, it is all going to change completely. So, I mean, just the most important thing you do is cling to Jesus, okay? Not, not just like, you know, cling to other stuff, but just, just stay clinging to Jesus. Okay, enough on that. All right, now, second thing that will happen, Jesus will be seen in power and great glory. Verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. That's a phrase that Jesus uses often to describe himself. He's the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now this event here is what all of creation even from before creation, as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit planned creation, the, the, the return of Christ is what all of God's plan was moving towards. This is there. That's what it's all about. And let me try to set the stage so you understand why. You're created as a human being with a, with a huge capacity for pleasure. Anybody here not like pleasure? Okay? You like pleasure. And your greatest pleasure is found in beholding greatness. Other ways you could phrase it, but that's the gist of it. So, like, just for example, you see Kobe Bryant sink a three-pointer in the last couple seconds of the game, and the Lakers win. And unless you're, like, really don't like the Lakers at all, at that point in time, you're, like, feeling pleasure, right? You all know who Kobe Bryant is? Okay, anyway, you're feeling pleasure. Why? Because you've just beheld greatness. It's an awesome thing. Or... Maybe your cup of tea is like you see this panoramic picture of Mount Everest, 29,000 feet in elevation, snow all over it, sun shining on it. And as you see that, you just feel this pleasure. Why? You're beholding greatness. See, we're wired so that your highest pleasures are found in beholding greatness. Now, what you've got to understand is that there's a greatness in reality, that's infinitely greater than a Kobe Bryant three-pointer or than 29,000-foot-high on Everest, and that's the greatness of God. God's greatness is infinitely greater than anything else, and your infinitely greatest pleasure is found in beholding God's greatness. And God has chosen to display his greatness through 
his son, Jesus. Jesus is the the focal point of the greatness of God. And so from way back in creation, when God first decided to create and display his glory, because he wanted to share the joy of his glory with us. All through the Old Testament, everything's preparing for the coming of Jesus. The Old Testament sacrifices, the prophets, the promise of the Holy Spirit, Israel's being in the center of the nations. We've covered all this in the past weeks. It all built up to Jesus' coming, first coming. And when Jesus came in his first coming, we saw God's greatness. It was veiled. He came lowly. He came suffering. Born in a barn? Laid in a manger? But even that displayed his greatness. And we saw the greatness of his power healing 10 lepers at once. We saw the greatness of God's power in Jesus as he teaches in ways that just make reality, just make our lives make sense. And then the most powerful picture of God's greatness in Jesus, fully God, fully man, is that he was suffering on the cross, willing to suffer on the cross to pay for our sins. The mercy of that and the love of that. So with Jesus' first coming, we saw God's greatness. And then... He ascended into heaven, poured out the Holy Spirit, and told his followers, go into all the world, preach the gospel to everybody, men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe, and I'm going to save them, preparing this, this people, the church, my bride. And that's what's happening between the first and second comings. And then the second coming takes place. First coming of Jesus was he came lowly. He came hidden. He came suffering second coming of Jesus, he will not be lowly. He will not be hidden. He will not be suffering. He will come glorified. He will come revealed. He'll come victorious. And you will see Jesus Christ coming, as he said here, in power, with power and great glory. You will see that. And depending on your response to Jesus in this life, how you react to that will vary greatly. If you have never bent the knee before Jesus, if you've never owned up to the truth of who Jesus is as your creator, your God, your savior, and, tr- and bent the knee before him and trusted him, if you've, never, if you've never responded in that way, well, I'm going to come to that in a moment, what that'll be like. That's the third point. But if you have bent the knee before Jesus, okay, if you have bent the knee before Jesus, I try to think of an example. It's going to be like, this is kind of dorky, but it's going to be like infinitely better than winning a $500 million lottery, okay? Because, I mean, just picture it. You're going to see infinite power, Jesus Christ, infinite power before you. You're going to see him with your own eyes. Just, I mean, what would it be like to see a being, the God-man who has infinite power? And you're going to see glory, great glory. And the highest pinnacle of God's glory all through the scriptures is his love and mercy. So the way I've, I've been picturing it this week, you look into his eyes and his eyes will be filled with white, hot love for you. Care for you. So you see infinite power, great glory. You look into his eyes, he's burning with love for you. He is just so glad that you've been saved. He's so glad that you're his. He loves you. And then, and then you're going to look and you're going to see how absolutely undeserving and unworthy you are. It's just going to break you. Won't it? 
and you'll weep with joy. And you'll maybe fall on your face speechless. Jesus! Or you'll leap and dance. You won't know what to do. But that's what's going to take place. You will see Jesus. And that moment when everyone on earth, those who've died, those who are still alive, everyone will see Jesus. That's the focal point of God's plan from the beginning of creation. That display of his glory in his son, which will be you for the first time drinking in the highest joy of the universe, which you've longed for. We've, we've tasted, we've had a down payment, we've had a deposit, but then the banquet, the full meal, the full inheritance forever. Okay, now, what about unbelievers? If you've never bent the knee before Jesus and submitted your life wholly to him in faith, what, what will that mean for you? It means you'll mourn in anguish. Read verse 30 again. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. All the tribes of the earth, just speaking of people all around the globe, this is not the mourning of repentance. This is the mourning of anguish. It's, it's anguish. Because you will be faced with your God in the person of Jesus who you've refused to own up to all your life. And you'll see there's no running from him anymore. He's got infinite power and great glory and I'm going to face judgment from him forever. Just like that, you'll see it, and you will mourn with anguish. Now, to get a taste of that, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 6, page 1031 in the Bibles we just passed out. Revelation 6, 12 through 17. If I could help you see the folly of continuing to turn your back on Jesus Christ this morning, I'd be a very happy man. Because this is real. This is history. This is going to happen. That's why I want to press this point a little bit. At the risk of offending some of you, I love you. This is truth. Okay? I have a mandate to fill fulfill from Jesus to let his word go forth. So listen to this. Revelation 6, 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars, the sky fell to the earth. Does that ring a bell? Okay. As the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. What would that look like? Jesus says, time to roll this guy up. We're going to do a new heavens and a new earth. This one gets rolled up. Throw this one away. Wait till they see the next one. Sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. Every mountain and island removed from its place. Going to have a new earth here. Let's get rid of all that. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. John wants us to see. This is the, the upper crust people. And everyone, slaves and free. So everyone, not just the upper crust hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. These are those who have not bent the knee before Jesus, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us 
and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. It's mourning with anguish. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So that could be you, mourning in anguish. I don't want to be dramatic. This is just reality. This is just reality. Okay, it's just right there in the book. So all who have not bent the knee to Jesus, their creator and savior, will mourn in anguish. Fourth thing that will happen when Jesus comes back. The elect will be gathered. Verse 31. And he will send out his angels with the loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. See, who are the elect? It's those who, by God's grace, have bent the knee before Jesus, trusted him. Just like we talked about earlier, I'm going to abide in you. I'm totally inadequate to live this life, but I ask you to help me. I want it to be helped. Would you work? I trust you. And he will go to work. So that, that's the elect. It's, it's not those who, let me be clear here, who trust Jesus perfectly, okay? Because that's nobody in this room, okay? Nobody this side of heaven. But it's those who trust Jesus persistently and who trust Jesus passionately. Not perfectly, okay? We're not sinless. But the elect are those who trust Jesus passionately and persistently. That's who the elect are. And he will gather to himself all the elect from from every corner of the globe. Okay, so I'm not sure what this will be like, but just let me... Let me imagine a little bit with you. So there you are, and first you see Jesus. And for the first time, the full meal, you behold him face to face. You, you see him, okay? And you're undone. You're weeping. You're laughing. You're on your face. You're dancing, you're, you're, okay? And then all of a sudden, you, 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 you find yourself being moved to Jesus. I don't know how the angels are going to do it or what that's going to feel like, but you're, you're coming to him. And he's looking at you saying, yes. And, and you look around and there's Reef Berbers from North Morocco coming to him. And then there's Uyghurs from Central Asia who are coming to him. And there's Inuit Indian, you know, Indians from Alaska that are coming to him. And there's, there's Mexican Indians from the mountains of Mexico. And there's Guatemalans and there's Kenyans and there's Libyans and there's Israelites and there's Palestinians. And from every nation, tongue and tribe, a great multitude that no one can count, all being gathered to to Jesus. And this word gathered is, Jesus uses it elsewhere in Matthew. It, it, he uses it to describe a hen gathering her chicks, right? Okay? And it's loving, and it's joy, and you're home, and you're mine, and well done, good and faithful servant, and wiping every tear from your eyes. The elect will be gathered to him. So that's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Four things. The entire cosmos will be absolutely transformed. Secondly, you will see him in power and great glory. Third, unbelievers will mourn in anguish. And finally, the elect will be gathered to him. Now, when will this happen? And that's the point of verses 32 to 35. And these are not easy verses, okay? Um, 
So godly people have different opinions on these verses. People who study the Bible really carefully have different opinions. So I'm just going to tell you what I think, and then you can study this for yourself. Okay, that's our passion here at Mercy Hill, is that you would study the scriptures for yourself. Okay? But let me share with you what I think these verses mean. I think Jesus is making two main points in these verses. First, verses 32 to 34, that he could return at any time. Read what he says. Verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you... He's talking to his disciples here, right? His disciples. Includes us, but he's talking to, you know, Matthew's there listening, and Peter's there listening, and James, right? John, they're all listening. When you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. So Jesus says that when his disciples see all these things, they'll know that he is near at the gate. So picture we're to look at think about a city. That's the metaphor. We're in, we're in a city, and Jesus is going to come back into the city. Okay, so if he's at the gates, that means the gates are here; they're closed, and he's like he's like right there, which means that at any moment he could be like here. Okay, but right now he's he's right here. So what things will his disciples see that will show them that he's right at the gates? It can't be the things in verses 29 through 31. It can't be the cosmos being shaken and him being seen and unbelievers mourning in anguish and us being gathered to him. Because that's not being near the gates. That's not being near. That's being here. He's already here. Right? 29 through 31 is not him being near. That's him being here. It's not him being outside the gates. He's in the gates. Do you see that? Do you all see that? Okay, verse 29 through 31, he's here, not near, he's here in verses 29 through 31, so the things that Jesus must be referring to are the things in verses 1 through 28. Things happen before the end, okay? So he's telling his disciples, when you see earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, when Jerusalem is destroyed, A.D. 70, when you see the gospel being taken out, when you see the church sufferings are advancing the gospel, no, Jesus is near, He's, he's right at the gates of the city. He's at the gates. He could come at any time. That's his point, is he could come at any time. Okay? He's right there at the gates. He's, he's waiting for maybe one more unreached people group. Maybe there is one more unreached people group. He's, he's waiting for one more unreached people group, maybe in Burma, to hear the gospel and have some be saved. He's waiting for one more person, maybe in your neighborhood, to come to Christ. Okay, then verse 34, which Bill asked the question about last week. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Okay, all what things? I think it has to be the same all these things as he mentioned in verse 33. Read the two verses together and see if that doesn't make sense to you. So also, verse verse 33, when you... Matthew, Peter, John, James, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All what things? The same things that he's talked about 
in verse 33, the events from verses 1 through 28. This generation, Peter, James, John, right? Those who were there that Jesus is talking to right then. Does that make sense? Ponder it some more, okay? But here's his point in these verses. He could return at any time. He is at the gate. Nothing else needs to happen before he walks in, okay? And if we can't see the gate, but if we could, he's like right there. He's right there. He's ready. He could come back during our potluck this afternoon. Right? He could come back while you're working tomorrow. He could come back 100 years from today. He's right there. And the only reason he delayed, remember Rachel Hatcher raised the question a few weeks ago, the only reason he delays, we see in 2 Peter 3 and Matthew 24, 14, is because he wants more to be saved. Maybe you. So the first point he wants to make in these verses is that he can return at any time, and the second point is that he will certainly return. That's verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away. Everything else will pass away. We'll have a new heavens, a new earth. Everything else will pass away, but there's one thing that will never pass away. My words will not pass away. When Jesus says, I will return, you can bank on it. He will return. Oh, if, if you could see this, if you could feel this, people talk about you know death and taxes are the most sure things. No, 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 no. There's something far more sure than death and taxes, and that is Jesus' return. You are going to experience this. You are going to be there. You're going to look into his eyes, and it'll either cause you to mourn in anguish because you've never owned up to him as creator, God, savior, or you'll see his eyes burning with white hot love for you and it's just going to you won't know what to do exhilarate you absolutely exhilarate you but you will be there you will experience this this is the most important event in your future this is it God's moving towards this point he will certainly come back Jesus will return okay Got a couple minutes for some questions. How do you not mourn for the lost at that point? Um, I think I think there will be a, there will be a sense of love and care for the lost. I just think that's what this verse is referring to. Okay, this this verse is referring to lost people who are mourning in anguish. So that's probably the, I mean, I could say more about that, but that's probably enough at this point. I'm not saying you, you wouldn't. I'm just saying that's not what this verse is talking about. Um, let, me, let me, though, add, I, I think that, that at that point in time, there will be a transformation in our hearts and minds so that, I'm kind of treading on ground here, so you just all take this with a big old grain of salt, okay, and you ponder this. You can wrestle this in your home groups, but you are going to so see the justice of God and so uh, be so uh, horrified at the sin of lost people and so captured at the mercy of Jesus 
that you'll be at peace about the eternal destiny of the lost. I'll just put it that way. There's something there. There's something there that... that um, I don't think Paul is going to have unceasing grief and sorrow forever like he had in his life over lost people. Okay? You ponder that. Just put a, put a like a, think about that one, okay? That's just, that's just off the top of my head, kind of. So, scary. Okay, let's move off from off the top of my head and have another question come up. Uh, go ahead. Are you trusting Jesus? I mean, I, I don't, it's a huge question, and it's a crucial question. I'm sure you're not the only one asking this, but, but it, it is a simple answer. Not, have you been sinless today so far? Okay, not, um, what else? What are some other nots? Not, have you been baptized? Not, have you, have you, uh, you know, have you gone to church? Thanks, hon. Just keep them coming, okay? All right. Are you trusting Jesus? I mean, are you relying on Jesus as your Lord? So you, you want to follow his commands and his guidance. You're relying on Jesus to save you. You know you're not good enough. You're done with trying to be good enough. You're relying on him to, to be your treasure. You seek him for your heart's satisfaction. You don't do any of that perfectly, but you do that mostly. You do that persistently. You do that passionately. So it's trusting Jesus. That's it. That's how you can tell. I think God could have done that. I see no evidence for that in the scripture. And, um, which is why, Romans 10, Paul says, how will they be saved without hearing? And how will they hear without a preacher? Which is why Charles Hodge said that chapter should leave us sleepless many nights with unreached people groups. And so, that's why we push unreached people groups here. That's why we talk about, why don't you move your family to Central Asia for the rest of your life? and tell Uyghurs or Kazakhs about Jesus. And so, uh, with all due respect to Billy Graham, um, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. And, and that's why the missionary mandate is massive for us. So you're, you're appealing to anybody here who's not trusting Jesus to not delay a moment and trust Him. He loves you. Oh, He loves you. He'll help you. He'll meet you. Yeah, it's Revelation 7, right? There's two pictures of, of the redeemed in Revelation. This is my understanding. Two pictures of the redeemed in Revelation 7. First half is 144,000, which I think is, is, a, is, is a takeoff of the complete Israel being there. Twelve tribes, 12 times what is 144,000? Twelve times? Thank you. Okay, whatever it is. All right, so, so I don't think that, that, there's a, that John at all intends that to mean if you're 144,000 and one, we're sorry, um, and you're not saying that, okay? Because then in the second half of chapter 7, there's another picture of the same people. Men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe, a vast multitude that no one can count who are saved. So that means that the 144,000 isn't, isn't a, a, a numbers tally of how many elect people there are. Okay? Revelation 7, two halves, both same picture of the redeemed in heaven. Check that out. Re- Revelation 7, great passage. Matthew 24, 14 says that. So the end will not come until the gospel has been preached. The Greek is panta ta ethne, to every ethne, every ethnic, cultural, linguistic group. Okay? And so we don't know exactly how Jesus tallies that up, but as far as we can tell, there are still 
In fact, the fact that he hasn't come back yet shows that that hasn't happened yet, because when that happens, then the end will come. So the fact that Jesus has waited today means that there's still unreached people groups that are going to hear the gospel, need to hear the gospel. And so that, that's why we emphasize unreached people groups in terms of our, our missions thrust. Well, except we aren't sure exactly how he tallies that up. So as, as best we can figure, well, we know, again, because he hasn't come back yet, he knows that there's still unreached people to be reached, and maybe neighbors of yours to be reached. Okay? But he still could come at any time because we don't know exactly how he tallies up unreached. What's a people group? Right? We've, God has displayed himself clearly to us through creation and, and, and nature. We all know we've got evidence coming out of our ears. We've got all the evidence we need. I mean, look at your body. Eyes, I can see. I mean, just this gift of life and body and health and food. He's good. He's loving. There's no reason to doubt him. We've all turned our backs on him. He says, look, trust me. I'll provide for you. I'll guide you. I'll satisfy you with myself forever. We've all said, uh, no, I, I want to be the boss. Created beings saying we want to be the boss. And so that is an infinite offense to an infinitely glorious creator. He's long-suffering, he's patient, he's slow to anger. But he will punish, and it's right. So, okay, let me just give you these, these last couple takeaways here. Let me encourage you to think often about Jesus' return. Don't walk away from this morning and just go back to living as usual like the world's going to keep on going the same way forever and ever. It won't. So, but you've got to think about this. I mean, how many of you have not thought at all about the second coming all this last week? I, I bet you'd be many of you who'd raise your hands. Followers of Jesus. Right? It shouldn't be that way. And so, in the back of my Bible, I've got a list of passages dealing with the second coming in eternity. And fairly frequently, I'll open up and just pray through those. Because I just forget about it so quick. So quick. So think often about Jesus' return. Don't just walk out of here and, and, and be on your merry way. Think deeply about this. The day will come when you will be there. Secondly, I just want to encourage you to bend the knee and trust Jesus this morning. To, to trust him, to be saved. We've all rebelled against God, like I was just answering John's question. And Jesus offers amnesty to we, his rebels, who've rebelled against him. And he purchased amnesty at the price of terrible suffering on the cross. And if you'll trust him, you'll be completely forgiven. Your heart will be changed. You'll know him. You'll be satisfied in his presence. He'll strengthen you, guide you, provide for you, empower you. So, just like Chuck said, don't, don't leave here this morning without praying with someone and bending the knee before Jesus and repenting of your sin and trusting him. Please, please don't. Third, seek Jesus to help you change. I was talking to Jan about this morning's teaching, and she said, she said no, it's going to be easy for people to either feel so, con- to feel so convicted about how much we don't long for Jesus' return that we can either just despair or we can just say, well, I hope it'll all be fine when I get there. I'm going to get, you know, do my laundry, something like that. And I think she's very wise. Uh, don't be overwhelmed. Just Here's what I would encourage you to do. Come before the living Jesus and say, Jesus, would you make your coming more real to me? Help me. I need you. Help me. 
Help me to feel this more. Help me to live this more. Grow me in this. If you'll do that, ask him to do that, he will birth this in you. He will do it. This is the whole Christian life. We're completely inadequate to do this thing. Jesus, help me. He helps. Okay, so do that for this as well. Don't despair. And don't just say, well, I hope it'll be fine. Come before Jesus and ask him to help you. And then finally, be encouraged to keep following Jesus. Listen, brother, sister, friend, if you're bending the knee before Jesus, he's going to return and you will see him. And when you see him, he will make it all worth it. He'll make it all worth it. So keep fighting the sin in your life. By faith, relying on Jesus, abiding in Jesus. But fight the pride and lukewarmness and the lust and the greed. Fight it! Because he will return. And when you see him, seeing him will make it all worth it. So keep fighting. And keep loving the brothers and sisters in your home group. Serve them. Encourage them. Help them fight against sin. Take the risk of speaking into their life. Pray for them. Sacrifice your life for them. Love them. Because when you see Jesus, seeing him will make all of that worth it. And keep fighting to trust Jesus. You're unemployed. Your husband's neglectful. Your body is failing and you're in pain physically. Keep fighting to trust Jesus because I promise you, you will see him. And when you see him, seeing him will make it all worth it. It'll all be worth it. And advance the gospel. Move your family to Burma. Build up your family's little missionary team here in Blossom Valley. Advance the gospel because the ostracism you may face, the discomfort, whatever cost it may be, when you see Jesus Christ, seeing him will make it all worth it. He'll wipe away every tear from your eyes. No more suffering, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. He'll say, well done, well done, well done. Good and faithful servants, enter into the joy of the Lord. This is in your future. Be encouraged. Press on. He's coming. Okay, let's stand. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray. I mean, I confess, if I hadn't been preaching on the second coming, I wouldn't have thought about it very much this last week. Not anywhere near enough. I think we're all in the same place. It's just so easy to get distracted. Help us, Jesus. Help us to think about this more. To live in that tension between your coming and everything changing and got to do the laundry and make the meals and work my job and raise my kids and love my wife. Lord, help us to, to put those together. Thank you, Jesus, that you're coming. Thank you that we just bend the knee before you and repent and confess and you change us. You save us. You wash us. You forgive us. We owe you everything, Lord. Thank you that you'll return and seeing you is going to make everything worth it. So strengthen us. Pray that you'd save people right now. Just bust down the excuses, the lies, the deceptions that, that we so easily struggle with. It'd keep us from you. Bust those down right now and save people now by your power, we pray. Thank you for this morning.
In Jesus' name, amen.